Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. Happy Healthy You. And now, here's Connie. Every time I talk to a PhD on this podcast, I get a little like, hmm, I start thinking maybe I could go back to school and get my PhD and really like hunker down and finally study something in depth. And and then I think, no, not going to happen, not going to (laughs) happen. Let me just tell you about my weekend. So I went to the farm this weekend. I went to hike a trail to um, blaze a trail for a charity walk. And we we just marked the trail. It was a five-mile walk through some woods and everything. And I hung out with my friend, and she's a farmer. She's been farming on the same 500-acre farm for like 30 years. And when she started telling me everything she does in one day, I felt totally inadequate and totally lazy because <laughs> I never knew that farmers did everything that she did. I mean, the, the uh, physical labor that is involved in being a farmer. Holy cow. Not, not a good pun. And then on Saturday, I went to lead a yoga and meditation with some really awesome, empowered African-American sisters. I was the only white girl in the group, and it was awesome. They welcomed me, and I learned so much about the trauma that can be involved in being born in black skin in our culture. And so that opened my eyes. So I had the farming experience, then we added on the... Uh, yoga experience with my sisters. And then the next day I went to a film that I had been in. You guys know I'm an actress. Fishbowl, really good independent film by up and coming film director Stephen Kingopoulos. He's just, he's going to be really big. Anyway, that film was about the hypocrisy and the dysfunction um, that can happen in small towns where people can be a little bit more holier, a little holier than thou, I should say. I don't want to give anything away in case it comes to your town. It's now making the film festival circuit. But um, yeah, in primarily segregated communities. So This weekend, I saw so many different sides of life. My eyes were opened up. So the idea of a PhD and really hunkering down like our guest today, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure it's for me, but I sure would like to uh, hone in on one thing at some point in my life. Hi, I'm Connie Bowman. I'm host of Happy Healthy You, the podcast about living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. So we do. We talk about lots of different things. Before we get into our conversation today with my friend Abby Henson, PhD, uh, I just want to give a shout out to Blue Planet Eyewear, our eco-friendly sponsor who makes really cute sunglasses and reading glasses. And the thing I love about Blue Planet Eyewear is that they give back. Um, they also use natural materials. They they always have new styles of sunglasses and readers, and that's why I keep going to them month after month to see what new styles they have. But they source natural materials for their glasses, like bamboo and wood, and it, they're really cool. So if, if you are looking for new readers or sunglasses as we move into the warmer, more sunny months, hopefully, I'm I'm being very positive about that as we head into spring here on the East Coast. Um, check them out, blueplaneteyewear.com, and use code CONNIE20, and you can check out all their styles and get a little discount. So uh, I just want to give a quick shout-out to my college, McDaniel College, founded in 1867, and it was originally called Western Maryland College. They changed the name in, I think, 2002. Um, it was a marketing decision, and a lot of us who went who graduated from Western Maryland before uh, the name change were kind of, uh, uh, we didn't like change that much. So um, as the years have gone on, I've really understood that a lot of people got the name mixed up with um, community college in the area. And it's really a good liberal arts college. It was a very good teaching college for anybody who wanted to be a teacher, but it was also just a really good liberal arts education. So I blame you, Western Maryland slash McDaniel College, for giving me an interest in so many things. It's um, both a blessing and a curse. And um, I just, I have a need to know since I had this good liberal arts education so much. I want to know about everything. I think their, um, let's see if I can remember, their motto was 
um, oh, it's very consistent with my yoga teaching. E tenebris in lucum voco means I call you out of darkness into light. So that's beautiful. I do love that. I love that motto. And today I'm going to be talking about dad's fathers. And I happen to have lunch with my dad this week with my sister. His name is Robert or Bob. Give a shout out to my dad too. But his close friends and family call him Laddie. Isn't that cute? He was a little Scottish lad, so they called him Laddie. He was the youngest and clearly the favorite in his family. And he grew up so loved and nourished by his family. And he just passed that down to all of us. Um, yeah, and it's a real blessing to have a dad like that. My sister and I happened to have lunch with him this week, and my dad got up to go uh, get a napkin or something. We were at a little coffee shop in Laurel, Maryland, and uh, he got up, and both of us just looked at each other and said, we are so lucky to have this man as our dad, and both of us kind of teared up. Um, he just turned 82, and he's just such a special guy. And One thing I learned from my dad is never say can't. Actually, my dad used to say, never say can't. He kind of mocked a little Southern accent, even though he didn't have one. And then he always said, everyone's different and nobody's perfect. And he got that from his own dad. It's amazing. Like things that your father says, especially for a daughter, are really taken to heart. I don't know. I just, I'm so grateful for having my dad. I am very, very lucky to have had a good, consistent, loving father. As I, I know now, as an adult, that not everyone has had that gift. So as we move into my conversation with my PhD friend, Abigail or Abby Henson is a PhD. Um, she has a PhD in criminal justice from Temple University. Thanks so much for coming on Happy Healthy You, Abby, to talk about your passion. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> hey, Abby, I know your dad. He's a good guy, too. Yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> sure. Since everybody gives shout outs on podcasts, should we give a shout out to Joe Henson? Yeah, we can give a shout out to Joe Henson. <laughs> Best headshot photographer ever, right? I need to see him again. He's yep, awesome. Got him on it. <laughs> so yeah, if you're a, if you're an actor, especially on the East Coast, he's up and down the East Coast all the time, and um, he and his now wife. <laughs> they do a great job. They have a great gig going. She does all the makeup and he does the headshots and he can he can hook you up if you want to be an actor. So and and I told Abby before we got on this podcast that a few years ago I was I was having a headshot session with his her dad Joe and um he mentioned so proudly the work that Abby was doing um and I think it was before you were getting your your PhD. I think you must you did your undergrad at Goucher, right here in Baltimore, right? Yeah, right there. Yeah. And then so you went to Temple for your master's criminal justice and, and then you went ahead and got your PhD. What the heck? How hard <laughs> how many years is that? So I'm actually a couple months away from getting my PhD. But I'm in the final stages of wrapping up writing my dissertation and this is my sixth year in the program so two years into it I got my master's and now four years later I'm here and that means I've been in higher education for 10 long years <laughs> oh my gosh yeah I don't know I, at my age even though I'm so interested in so many things I just I can't imagine the focus it must take but I think to have that kind of focus you really have to have this passion and I just I have to ask you how did you get involved or interested in criminal justice reform totally so I started working um, in the criminal justice field my freshman year of college um, I got hooked up with an opportunity to volunteer at an organization called Alternative Directions Incorporated, which is in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I was working, so to give, to back up just a little more, um, I went into college thinking that I was going to uh, major in psychology. I was really interested in how humans um, interacted with each other, what was going on in their brain, what made them do certain things, what experiences led to different outcomes. And so I thought that psychology was the way. And then I took an intro to sociology class my first semester at Goucher. 
And that was where I was more introduced to the social element of experience and cognition. And so I became much more interested in sociological theory and perspectives. And through that class, I started learning more about the criminal justice system and because uh, historically criminology and sociology have been tied and Mm -hmm. um, often they're in the same uh, school. So there will be a school of criminology and sociology. Um, And so I was speaking about how I was getting more and more into the idea and I got hooked up with an opportunity to volunteer at Alternative Directions and I started working at a women's prison Um, right outside of Baltimore MCIW and we were doing transitional service workshops with women who were 30 60 and 90 days from release and so we would bring in representatives from the um, electric company from banks from housing uh, corporations different places where they would come in and educate the women on how to pay their bills how to fill out a check how to find housing upon release. All of these kind of life lessons that many of the women did not receive growing up. Even where to get a hot shower when they were returning home because some of the women had been away for several years, had become disconnected from their families, um, and therefore had no support system to return to. So after working there and speaking with a lot of the women just about their stories, how they ended up in prison, um, I kind of realized the unjust nature of the criminal justice system and how we define punishment. And so uh, that's kind of really where the spark began. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's definitely how I got into it. And then it just grew from there. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I mean, how you can have just kind of a surface level interest and then something sparks a deeper interest. And then was there, was there any one particular experience or any person that you met that opened your eyes really to what you call the unjust nature of our, our justice system? I mean, yeah, yeah. well, so the one story that I think stood out the most to me because it was so shocking and Um, This is not to say that it's representative, but there was what led a lot of the women and the majority of women who are in prison today have been the victims or survivors of trauma. Um, The vast majority have been sexually, physically abused, neglected, um, maltreated. And so I was talking to this one woman And the reason that she was at MCIW was for arson. Um, And I think there was an attempted murder charge in conjunction with it. And it was because she was with her partner and he had gone outside of their relationship, their five-year relationship, and um, did not tell her. And ultimately, she found out that she had... Um, received HIV from him Mm. and so she lit the house on fire while he was in the home now this is not to say that um, the majority of the women in prison are violent because this is not true but I just remember thinking okay this is a very clear example that every action is a reaction to something else and we can't define people just because they're in this removed setting as evil or bad we have to contextualize why they're there and think about the root causes hey let me contextualize this a little bit i was having i was having lunch with one of my dear friends i've known her from kindergarten and i'm not going to mention her name but she we were talking about um tiger woods and the situation with his wife Mm -hmm. how she kind of lost her temper quite a bit and my friends had had a similar situation with her husband cheater cheater anyway Mm -hmm. So she said, I can totally understand how that could happen. And this is the most gentle human being on the planet. Did she? She was like, I could totally understand taking my golf club. And and she probably could have understood burning down a house in that situation. So contextualize that. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I I just so uh, am in awe of 
your passion for this. And I, and I know you worked with the women first, but something has taken you and um, your work in the prisons. I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. You, your dissertation that you're working on is enacting fatherhood in stigmatized communities, a strength-based exploration of paternal identity and its practices in Southwest Philadelphia. So that's pretty specific. But I, I just would like to know how you came from working with the women and, and now you're working with men and, and um, your work in the prisons with uh, helping fathers reconnect with their children. It's just so inspiring. So give us a little, I don't know, it's a lot, it's a big question, but yeah, no. take it. So after that experience at Alternative Directions, the following summer, I got an internship with the Correctional Association of New York, and I was working with the Prison Visiting Project. So we would go to mail facilities upstate, and we would tour the facilities, interview the incarcerated men, interview the executive staff, and ultimately give out a survey um, to the incarcerated men where they would tell us about their experience in the prison. Then we would collect the surveys and we would then um, write up a brief on that prison in particular and talk about the conditions of the prison and make suggestions for creating a more just environment for the men. Um, This would then go out to politicians, the public, and it would Uh, result in sometimes drastic changes made to the prisons. Um, Some people got fired. um, And so also then seeing the conditions there and just how, um, you know, for especially in New York, the majority of the people who are in prisons upstate are from New York City. And some of them are three, four, five hours away. Um, Research has shown that 62% of parents in state correctional facilities and 84% of parents in federal facilities are incarcerated more than 100 miles from where they were Mm -hmm. um, arrested, and that's usually where they're from. Um, For uh, Black children in particular, they have found that their parents... 25% of black visitors are traveling over 300 miles to visit their family members. And so to see the great disconnect um, between the kind of more rural, uh, predominantly white neighborhoods upstate mixed with the predominantly black urban community from New York City, um, it just, again, piqued my interest even more. And so... um, I then started working with, two summers later, I worked with the Bronx Public Defenders as a community organizer, Um, and so kind of doing more community-based prevention work, um, intervention work, and then uh, following my graduation, I worked at, um, I got an internship at the Vera uh, Institute of Justice, working with their sentencing and corrections Um, center. And so there I was doing more work with the prisons, learning more about, um, because they had this European prison program. Um, And so they were bringing representatives from American Department of Corrections around the country to go uh, to Norwegian prisons and see what they were doing. Um, And so my interest in prisons just kind of kept growing and growing through all these different experiences. And when I got to Temple, I was presented an opportunity to do an evaluability assessment, which is basically to see whether a program is evaluate, whether you can evaluate a program, whether they have measurable outcomes. And I was working with, they wanted me to do it with a prison-based fatherhood program. So when I got there, um, I had no idea really what it was about. And when I got there, I started interviewing some of the men who were a part of it. And it turned out because the majority of programs that are in prisons are created by psychologists, people in the community, people who have never experienced incarceration. Mm -hmm. And so often the programs don't do so well. The men don't or women who are in it um, in prison don't really buy into it. Um, It doesn't truly uh, get at the issues that they're experiencing as 
incarcerated people. Um, and so what made the program so unique that I was doing this evaluability assessment for was that it was founded by a group of men with life sentences. Um, and so they created the entire curriculum and it was created after one of the fathers, one of the founders who was a father, his son was murdered while he was in prison. And so he really wanted to break this cycle of violence that he was seeing and experiencing. And so he, he created this program with a group of other men. Um, and this is going to be their 12th cohort that they have done since I think it was founded in 2010. Um, and so I've been working with them for the last four years after doing the evaluability assessment and kind of making programmatic suggestions. I definitely became um, an advocate for the program. I sit on their external board. I um, am very passionate about their work because I've seen um, just what it does to families when you have someone that you we when someone goes to prison, we kind of cut them off from any of their prior identities. Mm -hmm. So we give them the master status of inmate, which is a dehumanizing term because it redefines that person and takes away the idea of them as an individual, which is why I don't like to call people inmates in prison. I like to call them incarcerated individuals so that we maintain their humanity. Um, but I, so the way that the program works is that there are six weeks of classes that the fathers go through inside. And then there are six weeks of visits where the children come up to the prison and they're in this kind of classroom like setting with other children, um, with the fathers and they're all doing activities together. So mural arts, Philadelphia, which is a, um, art-based justice program comes in and helps um, do kind of icebreakers with art projects. They have yoga instructors come in and do yoga with the kids mm -hmm. and the fathers. And then they have um, child psychologists and counselors available because they do these air it out sessions where basically the fathers and children have um, the platform to kind of totally be vulnerable with each other and speak about how the experience of incarceration has impacted both of them. Very cool. um, and it takes a really holistic lens because while the children are at the visits with the fathers, the caregivers of the children who are in the community are going off and doing their own curriculum, meeting similarly situated women, often women. Um, and, so they're creating a support system. The children are creating a support system and the fathers are creating a support system for each other. Um, and so I've sat in on, I think, 16 of the visits and just to see the love in the room, but also the pain from both the fathers and the children um, from the carceral experience is really um, eye-opening. And there's no way that anyone could sit in that room and say that prison works or yeah. is beneficial in any way. Oh, life-changing. I'm sure it was life-changing, Abby. Gosh. Um, just I want to back up a little bit. And what before, prior to any of these programs that um, have started to be implemented, what did we know about children who grew up with incarcerated parents? Sure. So we, a lot of the research is coming out more and more because, you know, we've since the 90s, we saw a spike, a severe spike in incarceration. And so it wasn't really on our radar to study children of incarcerated parents um, until maybe around 2000, we start seeing more um, research coming out. But those who um, are have incarcerated parents are more likely to engage in deviant behavior, um, so are more likely to engage in delinquent behavior, are uh, less likely to do well in school, are more likely to drop out. And um, this goes, so there's um, a book called Children of the Prison Boom. And it is, it talks about how 
even for children who were in situations where the parent who ends up incarcerated was abusive, incarceration still is not the right answer. It's not, although it might be beneficial to just have the father removed from the home, often the incarceration creates uh, financial issues for the family. So it leaves the family in a worse position financially. Um, so that's not to say that fathers or mothers who were abusive or neglectful should not um, be, you know, permanently or temporarily removed from the situation. But incarceration itself, the prison system that we have today, mm-hmm. is not beneficial in any way to um, the fathers, the children, or the mothers. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the European prison system. Do they have anything on us right now that we can learn from? Oh, 100%. So um, I actually heard the... Um, I He would be more or less the commissioner um, of a Norwegian prison. He came to speak at the prison in Chester. And so recidivism in the 80s, so recidivism, it's defined differently uh, by different people. It can be either a re-arrest or a re-incarceration. So when someone says recidivism, we don't technically know which they're using, but Mm -hmm. either way, he was explaining how in the 80s, their recidivism rates were 60 to 70%, which is comparable to what we have now. Now they have recidivism rates of 20 to 30%. And that's because they do these step. First of all, they have caps on their sentence lengths. So the maximum sentence you can get is 21 years. um, But then they do a reevaluation. So there are people that have been in prison there longer than 21 years, but they cap it at that and then do a reevaluation. And we've, Studies have shown that there's not really a deterrent effect. Lengthier sentences don't um, are not synonymous with more safety in a community. Um, and so they have a cap on their sentence length and they do a step-down program. So if you start in the Norwegian prison, if you start in a maximum security level, you are not going to be released into the community until you have gone through a step-down program of maximum, medium, minimum and then there's even like a furlough program where you go out to work in the community and then you come back and I think that this is really important because there are some people that we are allowing to come back into the community who we have been who we have sent to solitary confinement so people who have had one hour outside of their cell a day for potentially up to 10 years And then we just release them back into the community, Mm -hmm. having no sense of human touch. Most people who are in solitary confinement have to be in cuffs anytime they leave their cell. So we're we're not allowing this kind of re-socialization process to be a slow and healthy process. We're just kind of throwing people out who haven't even had physical touch in years. So... Um, I think there's a lot we can learn, particularly around the Norwegian prison. And a lot of people will say, you know, America has a unique, a unique history of uh, racism and slavery. And uh, our population is so much different than Norway. And yes, this is true. But Norwegian prisons are very diverse. And they also had, you know, he talks about when I saw him speak, he was saying how um, there really needed to be a shift in culture because the way that they were dehuman or the way that we dehumanize incarcerated individuals in America is very similar to the way that they dehumanized it. Uh, They're incarcerated individuals before they made these drastic changes to um, their system. They have a, um, they make sure that they have enough. Um, so they, they basically see the guards in their prisons as social workers. So every guard kind of takes on a couple caseloads, uh, a couple cases. 
And they're not just seen as these warriors, but also guardians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely a lot we can learn. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like it. Well, um, you mentioned the Fathers and Children Together or the FACT program a little bit. I want to get into that a little bit more. But I think probably listeners might be interested to know what it's actually like to visit a prison and work with incarcerated individuals. And what did you learn? And how did you uh, how did you change because of it? Mm-hmm. So the process is pretty. Um, it's it's nothing like you've ever experienced. So you go in, and there's a visiting room, which often has no art on the walls. It's very gray and bare. Um, And it'll have signs warning you about um, no underwire bras and no drugs and um, nothing kind of encouraging or understanding that this is a time that people are really in pain seeing the person that they love um, behind bars. So you go into the visiting room and then there's a metal detector and So when the kids come up, they also have to go through the metal detector. And there's this term of uh, secondary prisonization, which is the idea that you become a prisoner yourself when you enter the prison facility. And so you... uh, That's a little scary. I just have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of have the same regulations. You are subjected to the same kind of loud noises and... um, the speaker will go off every once in a while with a command and um, there's kind of this choreography of chaos that happens within the prison all day. And so you go through the metal detector, the kids will go through the metal detector and pull out, they'll be told to pull out their pockets. Um, I've seen, you know, to give them credit, some of the guards that I've seen interact with the children are really great and they're very understanding. Um, but it's still this process that's really scary for them. Um, so when you first started talking, I was imagining myself. But now, I, just to imagine a five-year-old child going into a prison and visiting, you know, mm-hmm. a father. I mean, that's got to be, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Traumatic. Yeah. Talk about trauma. Yeah. Totally. And a lot of the fathers that I've interviewed for my dissertation, about 50% of them were incarcerated during their children's lives. And they talk about how the prison or the visit was the best part of their day and the thing they looked forward to most. But they also felt a tremendous amount of guilt Mm -hmm. because they knew that their babies had to have their pampers checked. And there were all of these processes that their loved ones had to go through that were completely dehumanizing. And they just it was this mixed bag of emotions that they felt every time they had a visit because not only was it, uh, you know, degrading to their family members, but they also felt shame that their family members had to see them in this light. Um, so yeah. So anyway, you go through the metal detector and then there are all these Sally ports, which is where you have to go through one door, one gate, and then it closes behind you, and then the next gate can open. Um, and so there is this very intense feeling of being trapped. And the one of the things, too, is we're so tied and glued and feel such a sense of safety from our phones, I think, that you can't bring your phone into a prison. All you can bring in is your ID and your car key. Um, and so you can't have your phone. If there's not a clock, you have no idea what time it is. So it's a complete time suck. And, um, you know, if there's, there have been times where I've gone into the prison and you have to wait for someone to walk you to wherever you're going. And there have been times where I've waited for an hour in this kind of waiting room. Once you get into this second kind of part of the gates, uh, so you've already gone through the metal detectors, so you're checked in, and then you're just in this another holding cell, basically. Um, and no one's telling you anything. And so you're just kind of 
observing the motions of the facility um, just completely without any information. It can be uh, really intimidating. And the fact that this becomes just a normal part of life for people is kind of uh, incredible. So then to go in and actually be with the people who are inside, you just realize that we think of people in prison as this kind of like different species. We Mm -hmm. think of them as these people that are so different from us and they're really not. It's just that they're in this place. It's like, I mean, it may seem ridiculous to uh, compare them, but it's like seeing college kids on a campus and thinking of them as a different species, which maybe they are. <laughs> but I, um, I just, I think we need to start thinking about people in prison as people who are just in prison for this period of time, people just like us who are in this place for this period of time, because some of the men that I've met, particularly working through this program, are some of the smartest. I know that that a lot of people say, like when they meet people that are different from them that they didn't expect, oh, they're the smartest people I've ever met when Mm -hmm. really they're not actually that smart. But the (laughs) men that I've met, they have, they've gone through, um, you know, Villanova gives a bachelor's, has a bachelor's program at the prison. Um, they have master's uh, options there. So a lot of these men are highly educated and I've had amazing conversations with them and they're leaders and they're organized um, and they have very critical perspectives and voices. And um, so I think we just have to really, when we're thinking about incarcerated individuals, especially when they're coming home, we give them such a scarlet letter. We, we think of them as so different when really it's just that they went away for a period of time for probably if they did do it for a bad mistake or just a thing that they did that should not define them. If we were defined by our worst acts, we would all seem like a horrible people. Mm. Um, and So I think we just have to take a much more holistic and humanizing lens when we think about people in prison. Yeah, compassion. Compassion. Mm -hmm. Wow. So your dissertation, um, I'm just reading the the last sentence. You're aiming to deepen our understanding of black fathers' actions and the ways in which they construct their identities as fathers. Um, and uh, it's going to inform us of culturally, culturally relevant policy and programming, including recommendations for culturally informed police community engagement. So, so you're not only tackling the, um, the fatherhood and the children, but also police and community engagement. You want to talk about that a little bit and how that dovetails with what your, what your yeah. work is all about? Yeah, so... Um... Although it's not strictly for black fathers, Fathers and Children Together has been historically and predominantly black fathers who have participated. And so many of the men that I were speaking, I was speaking with, um, we would kind of talk about how fatherhood is defined within their communities. And a lot of times they would talk about this deadbeat dad narrative and stereotype mm-hmm. that they found so pervasive in their community, but it really didn't reflect the reality of what was happening in their community. And um, they were also talking about this redefinition of fatherhood that was happening across generations where we often uh, define fatherhood within these kind of middle-class white um, narratives of breadwinning and providing. And then we use that as the standard across all cultures when really that's not the baseline and should not be the baseline. Um, And when that is the baseline, we don't contextualize why a certain person might not be able to attain that role or that status as breadwinner or provider. So for these men thinking about 
their incarceration, the violence in their neighborhood, their criminal records, um, and then lack of employment, it's really hard to fulfill that role. And then you think about fathers in prison, there's really no way to fulfill that role. And so how do you redefine fatherhood away from provider and take a more caregiving, uh, teaching lens when thinking about fatherhood? And so I was thinking about these things and I thought it would be important to explore and kind of debunk honestly, some of the stereotypes that we have about black fathers in impoverished neighborhoods. And so I went out and started recruiting fathers um, ages 25 to 34 with at least one biological child living in one zip code, which is Southwest Philadelphia. And I ended up interviewing 56 fathers, um, 50 of whom qualified because of their age and where they ended up their zip code. Um, so I had 50 qualifying fathers and then I did follow up interviews with 27 of them. So over the course of about five months, I did 83 interviews. Um, and so part of the conversation was about how their experiences with their own fathers, what fatherhood mean meant means, um, to them and how they engage with their children. And then the second part was about how policing in the community specifically impacts them as fathers and what they tell their children about the police. Um, so Southwest Philadelphia in particular has um, one of the higher homicide rates and shootings, um, shooting rates in the city. Um, it has, so in 2017, it had double the national rate of unemployment. And um, so I thought it would be a good place. It also has a high rate of reentry, um, meaning men coming back and kind of cycling through the prison system. Mm -hmm. So um, again, I'm, I can't make blanketed statements about black fathers in general, because that also doesn't take into consideration uh, income or class. Uh, and that's also not to say that father, black fathers in Southwest would be the same as even black fathers in North Philly or in New York um, or in Maryland. But this is um, a specific look at these fathers in this community that I think with more research I wouldn't be surprised if it became more generalizable. But basically what they were saying and what the data shows, um, because I really, there's been a lot of kind of controversy in the sociology field uh, with people like Alice Goffman, where there's kind of this idea of the jungle trope and a white woman going into an urban black neighborhood and kind of looking around like she's going through a zoo and then um, coming out and writing really sensationalized uh, information on the experience. And so I really was sensitive to that and wanted to A, acknowledge my positionality as a white middle-class researcher, but also um, let the data speak for itself and not go in with conclusions of my own that I attempted to get the men to fulfill or to interpret their data or their quotes, what they were saying to me in a way that um, was just drawing from the most extreme cases to get the biggest shock factor. So mm -hmm. what I found to be the most consistent across all of the fathers was that they did feel um, a sense of absence uh, from their fathers. Although some did have their fathers around, many of them did not. And their fathers were either in the streets, incarcerated, um, some had passed. But a lot of them, because they didn't have, so many of them did not have their fathers around, they really wanted to, that incentivized them to be in their children's lives. So again, these are men ages 25 to 34 
whose fathers were wrapped up in that peaking incarceration rate that we saw that we discussed earlier. And so these, uh, these Abby, these 56 men that you asked, you, the questions that you asked, you got really personal with them, right? Mm-hmm. And they, you feel like they confided in you. Yeah, I do. Um, I, it was, I have done a lot of interviewing, um, in my time at Goucher and at Temple. And so I feel um, pretty confident in my ability to um, build rapport pretty quickly. And I think also just being a listener and um, allowing the fathers to just be heard was really important. I think many of them noted that this was the first time that they had spoken about these things out loud um, and that it felt really good to just have someone be curious about who they were and what their stories were. A lot of them, which although maybe unethical, uh, started calling me their counselor, which I had to tell them that I was not their yeah. counselor. But I guess that's just a testament to how comfortable they were able to feel and um how deeply they needed to be heard. And so, um, you know, some men cried, some men um, became really passionate about what they were talking about. And I think, um, so yeah, again, there was this incentive to be a part of their children's lives and redefine, you know, when I asked a lot of these men, how do you define fatherhood? almost all of them used the same language and said being there. And when I probed and asked, what does that mean? They just said being there in a way where if you have a nightmare, I'm going to be there to support you and comfort you. I'm going to want, I'm going to be at all of your basketball games. I'm going to be able to spend quality time with you. It's not just about money. It's not just about providing. It's about being there. And I think that that is, a really important sentiment and something we have to acknowledge that that is a cultural notion in this community um, of how these men are defining and enacting fatherhood. Yeah. Yeah. So many things about um, this work that you're doing just strikes me. And um, I'm just so inspired. (laughs) I think um, for those of us who have just grown up in this little bubble, you know, like the like the movie I talked about I went to yesterday, just this little fishbowl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we wouldn't think about the incarcerated person at all. Like you mm-hmm. said, it's a dehumanizing um, sensibility, I think. And I, I think you've opened our eyes to so many things. And um, what what do you know now after having gone through this? I know you're still just at the cusp of your career, which I think you're mm-hmm. going to do really big things. What do you know now about um, what it takes to change policies and um, to make these changes that really need to be made? Um, do you, do you know anything, <laughs> anything that you can pass on to us? Anybody who might be looking to, um, you know, make a difference, even in a small way in their own community? Yeah, well, I think that it's really important. I think one of our evolutionary tools of connection is storytelling. And so I think we find the most or we gain the strongest sense of empathy when we hear stories rather than just statistics and numbers. Um, And so I think, I think the way that you make change is exposing stories and stories in particular that resonate with a broader audience where um, a broader audience can be like, Oh, I've felt those feelings. I know what I never thought I could relate to this person and I know exactly how they felt in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, if we can allow people who have gone through experiences of incarceration or hyper policing, um, to talk about the, what it's like for them, um, 
and not silence their voices just because of the stigma that's attached to their experiences. Um, I think that that is where we would start see change. I mean, I know like a lot of people have some uh, perspective on Kim Kardashian, but she has been a huge uh, game changer in the Trump administration with the way that we're with the First Step Act and the way that we're um, changing policy. And that was because she heard this woman's story on Twitter. She, the story resonated with her. And then she went to Kushner and started making moves. And I think it's really, again, that um, putting out the stories and showing the faces of people who are going through this and what it's like. Yeah. The humanity, sharing our humanity, because just like I mentioned, my friend who shall remain nameless, who (laughs) could have easily burned down her house, we are all just by the grace of God, you know, one step away from any of this. So thank you so much, Abby, for sharing your right in the middle of your busy season, finishing up your dissertation. I'm so excited for you. Congratulations on your PhD. I know your daddy, Joe, is just like beaming with pride. (laughs) And I still I don't know if I'm going to get a PhD. I might go back and get a master's in something though but it's going to have to be something very diverse you're you're super yeah. inspiring <laughs> I, I'm inspired by the weekend you had I love farming I I my boyfriend spent a month um on a commune this summer and he got super into the idea of farming and I think it's amazing my cousin has a homestead in North Carolina where she has goats and um chickens and it's pretty amazing when you can be self-sustaining it is amazing but it's a whole different it's a whole different uh lifestyle I mean the the amount of physical work that my friend has to do just to like keep the farm going every day <laughs> it's oh, crazy it's I was I like my cousin has woken up later than 4 30 in years yeah yeah and I'm like when do you get your nails done no <laughs> she's like what <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so um maybe a little diversity is is good but I'd like to hone in and and learn a little bit more but thank you for for opening my eyes and the eyes of our listeners um, yeah. to your work. I think it's it's super great. And good luck. Finish that PhD and go out there and we'll be behind you. If there's anything we can do, just uh, chime in on our Facebook page and, and give us, oh, give us any information that you might have um, um, where we can, I don't know if you want people to contact you yet, but if, if somebody wants to hire you, oh, yeah. <laughs> where would they, <laughs> how would they get in touch with you or do you have a website or anything yet? Yeah, I don't have a website yet, but my email is Abigail, A-B-I-G-A-I-L, Henson, H-E-N-S-O-N, at temple.edu. And yeah, if you have any questions or comments about my work, I'd be happy to answer them. I clearly love talking about this stuff. I am in my dissertation writing, so I'm alone all the time. So (laughs) I'm very happy to talk. Well, I'm glad I kept you company for a little bit. This is really so interesting and keep up the good work. It's awesome. Thanks so much. All right, get back to work, girl.